Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, March 28, 2021, we bring you a special Palm Sunday message by Pastor Bob Wade out of Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 41. Enjoy. Palm Sunday begins something called the Passion Week. If you can think back, you know, eight, ten years ago when, you know, Mel Gibson uh, made his movie, The Passion of the Christ, it was all, all right, you know, it was about the, the very end of Christ's life and, and what happened there and, and the brutality of it all and, and all that goes with that. And, and it, it's a very powerful picture. It's called The Passion Week. And it's so important, if you just put it into perspective here, that, you know, Jesus' earthly ministry was three and a half years long. And the Passion Week, of course, is six days at that point. And yet half of the gospel messages are just about that last six days. That tells you the significance of that. Palm Sunday got its name, like, like Brendan said, because people in Jerusalem used palm branches to wave, to wave around and to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. They knew that he had stopped in Bethany, that he was, which was a village outside of Jerusalem there. He'd gone there to have dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus, remember, if the guy that was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. Pretty famous story. I mean, everybody knew the story. I mean, it was no news, no piece of news would have been even remotely comparable to this. I mean, imagine if you're someone that's living in a neighborhood there in Jerusalem, and you come along and, and, you know, you start talking to your neighbor, well, what's new? Well, you know, one thing they'd say, well, you know, the next door neighbor, their goat had a kid. Oh, okay, great. You know, and someone else would say, well, what else, what do you hear? Well, I hear that the well is kind of drying up. They're going to have to dig deeper and, you know, if we're going to keep getting, oh, great. What about you? Well, I heard that that prophet, you know, from, from Judea, you know, or from, excuse, from Galilee that came, and remember, you know, when you heard about Lazarus? Yeah, yeah, I know about Lazarus. He married Martha's. Yeah, yeah. Remember him? He, he died. He was dead three days in the grave. In fact, he was so long in the grave that they literally said, Jesus, if you roll the stone back, he'll stink. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. The guy that raised him from the dead? Yeah, he's coming. That's big news. Everyone knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, it's hard to believe that anybody had not heard that story. They also knew that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The reason why they would know that is because in those days it was considered compulsory for every good Jewish male to come and to be there at Passover. Now, I'll put it in the terms of good. If you're a good Jewish male, you're not leaving your wife and your kids out in the middle of nowhere. So you brought him with you. That would mean that the old city would really swell up. I mean, it would get, you know, much bigger, you know, during that time. They knew he was coming, and so they would grab all those palm branches, and they began to wave them like you would do with flags or placards or, you know, maybe a banner or such, and they began to shout a prophecy from the Old Testament. From Psalm 118, verse 26, regarding the coming of the Messiah, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That did not make the Pharisees happy. 
We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, context-wise, again, this is six days before the Passover. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19, and you can follow along with me, because we're going to spend a lot of time here in Luke 19. We'll look at a few others, but predominantly it's Luke, Luke 19. We're going to start off with verse 28. We'll go through verse 41 here. It says, And when he had said these things, the hearer being Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say to them, the Lord is need of it. So those who went away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, his owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord is need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Now, the account here is incredibly picturesque. That's one of the things that makes the gospel accounts so so beautiful, is they have sort of an Old Testament quality to them. But there's three truths here that I want you to get here that's very important for you to get. And then at the end of that, there's something that you're going to have to decide for yourself. And that is the reaction. How do you react to Jesus? Now, the first thing you can see here in the passage is who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Go back to verse 37 and 38 for a second. This is, and as he, Jesus, was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that seem blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The multitude here most certainly would have been in the hundreds and very likely could have been in the thousands. Now you've got to remember here that the old city of Jerusalem was not very big. I mean, in reality, it probably would be about as big as about six to seven times as our campus here at Highlands. Not large. And during that time it would swell with people. Close to a million people would come to be in that crowd. There'd be so many people that there was certainly wouldn't room for them. And if you think about even Mary and Joseph having to go and to register during that time and they found no place to sleep, that wasn't uncommon. I mean, people would have to go to the villages outside of Jerusalem or they would you know, just come and they would set up a tent and they would sleep you know, in places that they felt most safe. For example, up next to the walls of the city. There would have been crowds everywhere, all over the place. So this large crowd here is praising Jesus here, calling him the king. Now, one of the things that Brendan mentioned there is that there are some people that were hoping for a king 
that would come and just release them from the Romans and the oppression that the Romans had put on them. There were others there that believed that this is the king of kings. And so here you got Jesus and this large crowd of people and they are praising him and he is accepting their praise. He never once stops and says, oh, you should only say that about God. Now, let me tell you why that is a really big deal that he's accepting their praise. You ever heard people say, you know, I don't know if I believe Jesus is God. People will say things like, I think he was probably a really good moral teacher. Others will say like, well, you know, maybe he was a prophet of some you know, kind or an example, you know, that people should follow or, you know, something like that. Well, let me just challenge that for a second. If people are praising him, calling him the king, and he's not the king, then he is not a good example for letting that happen. He's not, you know, a good man. He would not be a model for anybody. He would be a deceiver. See, Jesus knows exactly what they're saying about him. And he lets it come. He lets them call him the king because he is the king. Now later in verse 40, he's actually going to affirm that. But Jesus here is also fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Now I want you to do something with me here. I want you to turn back to the prophet Zechariah. Now, that, I know, is probably not a place you get up every morning and go to. Okay? So here's what you do. Go to the very last book of the Bible, or the Old Testament, excuse me, last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and go one book before that, and you get to Zechariah. Okay? Go to Zechariah. Go to chapter 9. And we're going to look at verse 9 here, this prophecy about the coming Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and in having salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Boy, the prophecy here is clear. So Jesus here not only allows them to call him the king, but he also fulfills the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Now, go back to Luke 19. Make sure your finger is there. And then I want you to go over to Mark 11. Mark chapter 11. The reason why I want you to do that is I want you to understand that the triumphal entry story, the Palm Sunday story, is actually in every single one of the four Gospels. But each one will have a slightly different you know, bit of information that adds to it, and it's an amazing kind of a story. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 2, he said, And he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately if you, as you enter there, you will find a cold tide, which no one has ever set. Untie it, bring it to me. And if anyone says, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And so there's no question here. If you go back, for example, who the, the people are calling him, they're recognizing him as a king, but there's also no question about who he says he is. You see what he said there? You tell them that the Lord has need of it. Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. Now go back to Luke 19. 
The Pharisees here try to get Jesus at this point to stop calling him Lord, and he won't. He affirms it. Look what he says in verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What were they asking for? Jesus, do not. You you know better than anybody. I mean, you're a rabbi, Jesus. You're a teacher. You cannot let them call you God. Why does he let it happen? Because he is God. Verse 40, he said to them, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is forcing the hands of the religious leaders to stop him. You say, why this time? Well, Jesus came to Jerusalem many times and he had other confrontations with you know, religious leaders at other places. Did miracles. and But every single time, you'll notice that somewhere in the conversation he would back off and move away and he would leave people to deal with what he had just simply done. Because it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the time for him to go to the cross. It wasn't the time for him to die yet. But now it is. Now he will force their hand. And so on Palm Sunday, the people proclaim him the king. Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. He fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. I mean, the Bible is absolutely clear here. Jesus is God. Now the second thing that Palm Sunday accounts tell us is how and why he came. Again, go back to Luke 19, verse 30, and he says, Go into the villages in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide in which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here, and if anyone says to you, Why are you untying it? Say to him, The Lord has need of it. So again, Luke even agrees with Mark. There he calls him, where the Lord calls himself uh, the Lord. Verse 32, and those who were silent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying it? And they said, the Lord is needed. And they brought it to Jesus, sewing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And he's riding along, they're spreading their cloaks on the road. What that was basically like is imagine a cloak being a part of your normal wardrobe. So when you're traveling, you would have cloaks with you that you would probably use maybe as your bedding in some cases. But they literally take it down and they begin to throw it on the ground like it's carpet. Like the red carpet had been rolled out. The issue here, though, is the donkey. You would think that if he's the Lord or if he's the king, he'd be riding some huge, powerful stallion, right? I mean, the president doesn't get inaugurated and ride in a pinto. You don't even know what a pinto is, do you? It's a loser car. I'm sorry, if you ever had a pinto, forgive me, I just had to say that. I had a Vega one time, that's as bad. Now well, people from Chevy can hate me too. Um, why, why, why ride on a donkey? I mean, why not write in, if you're a king, why not write in like a king? Right? Well, the issue is, 
What was Jesus' mission? What was his mission? What did he come to do? You see, in those days, if a king or a general or somebody comes riding in on a big, massive stallion, what he's riding in and saying is, come on, I think I can take you. I think we defeat you. This ends by you either killing me, defeating us, or we take you. We're going to war or you surrender. That was the message back then. Is that the message of Jesus here? Keep your finger here in Luke chapter 19. I want you to go all the way back to Revelation chapter 19. Last book of the Bible. Revelation 19. Look at verse 11. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus. Okay? And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Um, Jesus one day will come back on a big horse. He will. One day he will come back and his mission will be Judgment. His mission will be war. There will be war in heaven. But that's not what the mission is on Palm Sunday. The mission on Palm Sunday was to come offering peace. Reconciliation between us and God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells it so, so sweetly. It says, for while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now are we reconciled shall be saved by his life. His mission was to come and bring peace. And by the way, here's the good news. Until the end time comes, that's still his mission. To come and bring peace between us and God. See, the donkey reveals the how and the why that Jesus came. He's not coming to Jerusalem to bring judgment. He's coming to die for our sins. He's coming to bring peace between us and the Father, to be the propitiation for our sins, to reconcile us to God himself. He can do that all by himself. He doesn't need our help at all. He can do that all by himself because Ephesians 2.14 says he himself is our peace. The donkey tells us two things. First of all, it's a prophetic thing. It tells us who he is. And then secondly, it's a peace thing. It tells us why he came. To bring peace. To bring reconciliation. Paul even mentions the mission here in in Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 when he says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The mission was, I will make peace between us and the Father with my death. He's not talking about world peace. I, I know that, I realize that there's, you know, there's so many people in the world would love it if, if, you know, was he saying hold hands and sing kumbaya? No. 
and and I I don't mean to be negative, but I, I'm going to be honest with you. There will never be world peace until Jesus rules the hearts of men and women. Because until that time, men and women will ultimately return back to what is best for me. Every single time, every human being will go, what, what do I need to do? And chaos breaks out. We run to the store. I, I get it completely because I'm going to find things that are going to protect my family. Because what is best for me? There is a higher world that will come when we reach a place when it says what is best for the people that God has called me to love. That will not happen in this life. The peace he's talking about is peace between us and God. The promised Messiah will come and he will bring peace. That has always been the plan. In fact, go over to Isaiah. Just, you know, uh, if you get to Jeremiah, it's a really big book. Go to Isaiah. It's one book before that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. In a passage we often read at Christmas time, but it spells things out so clearly. It says in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He doesn't just come and bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He was born to bring peace. He was born to bring reconciliation between us and God. Now there's a third thing. And that is how Jesus feels about us. Go back to Luke 19 again. How Jesus feels about us. If you look at verse 41, and we'll also look at verse 42 here, it says this. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. And saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. What amazing picture. Jesus wept. He cries. Why? Doesn't he know everything? He does. He cries though because he looks at this city that is overflowing with people and they are full of people that are coming there to do their duty. To, to do their obligation, to, to pay the things that they have to, to do, to make the offerings and, that they have to, to make, you know, for the next year. I mean, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, somebody saying, oh, okay, I went to church, got that one done, you know, and then I'm, I'm for free. All these obligations, they were coming to the city because it was expected that they would come. But they're not coming looking for him. They're lost. And that causes him to weep. This isn't the first time the Bible tells us that he wept. John chapter 11, Jesus arrives in Bethany and, and he heard that Lazarus was really sick and so, you know, literally he plans and he stops and he waits and he doesn't go immediately. He waits till he dies. And they stick him in the ground. He's been in the ground for three days. I mean, so, you know, again, so badly that they're afraid. Lord, Lord, if you open up the door, you know, and pull that away, he's going to stink. His body's breaking down. You know, don't, don't do that. 
He's been in the ground a long time. Jesus gets there, and this crowd of people there is weeping. They've just lost someone that they love, a friend of theirs in this case. But there seems to be a a sickness or a sadness here that takes place too, because frankly, at least half of the Jewish population at that time did not believe in an afterlife. A group called the Sadducees. The joke when I was in seminary is they're crying because it's so sad, you see. Okay, I'm sorry. That was really bad. I was told not to say that, but... So John, so Jesus shows up there. Lazarus is in the grave. The people are crying. They're just lost. And he feels for them and weeps with them. You get the shortest verse in the Bible. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. Those tears were born out of love. A love so great that Jesus would endure the cross. He would die in her place. Those tears reflect the sorrow of the situation. But they also reveal his heart and how he feels about us. You know, so many times people will think, you know, I just think maybe God flies at 30,000 feet and he just doesn't know what's going on in my life. He doesn't care. He doesn't seem to, to intercede when I expect him to do and in the way I expect him to do it. It just doesn't happen. I just don't think I matter to this. Like somehow like he's aloof or he's just too busy and nothing could be further from the truth. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that he is a sympathetic high priest. He knows everything that we're going through. You say, why would he let me go through it? You know, on occasion, my wife and I will babysit our youngest grandchild, and she's right at that age, at, at five months old right now, where she's turning over, and she's, you know, she's kind of rolling just a little bit, and when it becomes too hard, she begins to cry because she wants me to pick her up instead of her develop that ability to turn over and put her hands and do this whole thing. And she doesn't like it. It's not fair. You're bigger and stronger. Why can't you just reach down and help me up? But she'll never be able to become who she's meant to be if I pick her up. Same thing is true with us. Well, God, couldn't you intervene for me? He could. Sometimes he does. We call it a miracle. And sometimes he says, trust me. I will make something better in you if you'll trust me. Jesus here, he weeps. And to me, that says a lot. I mean, that ought to be a model for us. I mean, doesn't the scriptures tell us that we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Man, if you've never had tears for the hurting and the lost, maybe you're too caught up in yourself. Because I will tell you this, Jesus is anything but self-focused. He is going to Jerusalem to die for someone else's sins. Every part of his life, from birth to death, cries out, I love you. And none of us deserve it. And yet he does it. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Folks, none of us are so valuable or so pleasing or so winsome that he felt compelled to die. He died because he loves us. Even the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16 declares that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The story here, the Palm Sunday story here is a powerful story. It tells us a great deal about the Savior. I'm going to ask the band, the worship team, if they'll come and and join me. While they're doing that, let me ask you a question. This is what I mentioned at the very beginning. The question is, what does this mean for you? Matthew chapter 21, if you have the Bible, turn over to that, will you? Matthew 21, verses 9 and 10, in Matthew's account of what happens here, says this, verse 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Now, what I want you to notice here is that people will respond differently to Jesus. There are some people, verse 9 tells us, that are excited. They are fully excited. They, they are calling him the king. They recognize him as the Lord. Verse 10 says there are others that simply do not know. They've heard. They've all heard. I can walk down my street and knock on every single door in my neighborhood and ask a simple question. Have you ever heard of Jesus? Every single one of them would go, I've heard of Jesus. That doesn't mean they believe. The big difference there. Not everyone has the same response. Not everyone is ready to worship and it's no different today. You know, this morning we're going to be taking communion. In fact, I want to encourage you that if you didn't grab communion stuff that looks like this, if you just slip your hand up, someone will come and will grab and bring communion stuff to you. Just keep it up and they will bring that to you. Communion is all about remembering the Lord's death, His sacrifice of His body and His blood. Communion is about, do I believe? Let me make sure you catch that. Communion is not an obligation. It is not compulsory. It is not something you could do and go, okay, good, I'm really glad I got that done. Communion is about this. Do I believe that Jesus came and died and shed his blood for me? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul writes and talks about communion, In verse 28, he says to examine yourselves before you take the elements. And so I want you to do that. We're not in a hurry to get through. There's still a few more people that need to to get the elements. The question I want you to ask as you're preparing yourself is this. Do I believe. 
I'm not asking you to have every answer. It's, it's, I want to tell you right now, it's impossible for you to have every single answer. That will happen when you stand before the Lord in heaven. The question is, do you believe? Or is there something inside of you that's telling you, well, you know, I just think Jesus is a historical figure, maybe taken out of context, I don't know. It's a big difference. The good news is, is if the Lord is speeding up your heart, if you can feel that, that beating that's going crazy right now that's, that's causing you to, to be stirred up inside, if he is quickening you, bringing you to life right now to believe, here's the good news. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says that whoever would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, that's good news. I don't have to crawl on my knees for five miles to prove something good news I have to call on the Lord and you could do that this morning right where you're at and so if God is doing that in your heart if he's working something in your heart if you just feel compelled to tell him that you want him I'm going to invite you to do that right where you're at In fact, I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's not, a, it's not perfect words. It's, not, it's just a, an example. But if you want to do that, if you'd like to begin that relationship with God, I'll pray out loud. You can pray after me silently. Dear God, I need you. And I want you. And I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to come into my life. To put your spirit inside of me. To make me alive. Lord, I trust you. Do what you want with me. If you prayed that prayer... Let me just say welcome to the family. I was 14 years old when I prayed that prayer. I wasn't raised in a a church going home. I didn't have all the answers. There was all these theological words. I didn't know the answer to all those things like that, but I do know this. I do know that before Jesus came into my life that I was imperfect. I was a sinner. And I knew the standard of God's heaven is perfect. You have to be perfect. And so left on my own, impossible. Unless a perfect God makes a way for me to get into a perfect heaven, I don't get in. That's what Jesus came to do. He rode in on that donkey so that he might provide peace, reconciliation between us and the Father. And so if you prayed that prayer this morning, that's what you have. Now it's time to celebrate, to remember that. Paul writes and he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
verse 25. It says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for making peace between me and the Father so that I could be a part of your family, Lord. That I could be forgiven, have new life. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, I want you to know that the prayer of the staff this past week is that God would fill the churches in Maricopa County that that preach the gospel. We're not talking about just Highlands. People are open. We don't know who God's moving in their hearts. Take a chance. People believe that there's something religious about Christmas and Easter and they're open to come. And then it's up to God if their hearts get moved. But we want to give the gospel to them. Please, we encourage you, take the chance, reach out to those people you love and care about and invite them to come that they might find new life. God bless you. Love you all.